pray. Hope shall change to glad fruition. We look forward, Lord, to the day in which that is our reality. We know that that's a reality and we're assured of it because of what it is that Christ has done for us. And as again we look at your word this morning, the divine inspiration, the account of the sufferings of our Lord on our behalf that assure us the, the hope that will one day break forth into fruition, the, the faith that one day breaks forth into sight. The believer carries this hope within them always because we've been born again out of the gospel, the good news. We see, Lord, that the message spoken of throughout the rest of the New Testament is a message to the reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The apostles many times were put on display to give an account for how they were able to do what they did by miracle or the reason for the hope that they had within, and it always goes back to one place. There's one source. Jesus Christ himself, his work, his suffering. And as we read about that this morning, Father, it's my prayer that you would again impress upon our hearts, touch us once again in a fresh way with the realities of what it is that Christ suffered and endured on our behalf. Make our salvation sweet. Make the gospel good news to us, to our own hearts, to our own ears. And that way we will be much more inclined to share that good news with others, and we would be much more inclined to worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And so fuel our hearts today, Father, for worship, for right living, to honor you and to glorify you in all things. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. We are in Luke chapter 22 verses 63 through 71 this morning. Turning from Peter's denial, his bitter denial of the Lord, we find ourselves beginning a series of events that will lead us all the way through chapter 23 up to chapter 24 where we come into collision with the resurrection. And so everything that takes place in our passage today all the way up to the resurrection is the account of what it is that Christ has done, what it is that he has suffered on our behalf to secure our salvation for us. And I mean, that's good news for us. My concern, my hope is that as we read through passages like this, these are texts that are very well known to us. And because of our, you know, our proclivity to... um, become numb to that which is very common, that that's the trap we fall into when we read passages like this as well. And so I hope that by way of the work of the Spirit and by the preaching of his word and by way of my reminder that we would be rescued from that today. And we would again be able to see with clear eyes of faith what it is that we're reading and what's taking place. And as we read of the sufferings of Christ and we're seeing the story of our redemption, salvation, being accomplished for us um, as Christ endures what he endures on our behalf. And this is a story, these are texts that should never get old for us. 
and seeing what it is that Christ has done. And we're going to be reading through verses 63 through 71, and we're going to read a little bit. In, in Luke's gospel, the, the physical hardship and beatings that Christ endures is fairly short, and most of the text actually focuses in on this, this trial that he has. And it's really this trial that um, we see that the, the title of the sermon, A Majesty Concealed, um, really shine forth in who Jesus is in this conversation that he has with the Sanhedrin regarding his person and his profession of who he is and what they ask him, who you are, and, and how he leads them um, through this conversation. And then ultimately their response to his confession of who he is is what leads him then the, the next set of events down to Pilate, to Herod, and ultimately to be crucified. Um, and so it's this concealing of his majesty that we see today in particular. Um, my hope is that as we go through this, this is one of these texts that for, you know, for many years, you, I read this conversation that Jesus has, probably with most likely with Caiaphas, who's the high pri ruling high priest at that time. And there's always some sort of, um, usually some sort of vagueness to it, because we don't, I think in our, in our culture and in our understanding of what it is that's going on here, we don't really understand the weight and the impact of the words that are being used. And when they ask him the question, are you the Christ? They have something very clear and particular in their mind that they're asking him that we don't because of who we are and, and you know, the time and the culture that we live in. You know, we're not first century Jews, so some of this stuff is lost on us. So when they ask him, are you the Christ? They're asking him something very specific. And when he says, I am the son of man, his response is very intentional and it's very specific. And then when they say, so are you the son of God? It's again, very specific and intentional. And, and this is a conversation where everyone involved knows what's going on. Um, and so it's my hope today that as we go through this passage, we can gain a better understanding of what it is that's happening here, that's transpiring for the purpose of this, worship for the purpose of understanding. I think I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that the more that we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we understand him and know who he is and we see his glory, the more that we will love him. And the more that we love him, the more inclined we will be to worship him, which at the end of the day is the hope. That's the goal of the life of the believer is to live a life worthy of him, to live a life of worship to him. And so um, that's my prayer. What comes out of our reading through and going through the text today is that we are uh, more inclined to be worshipers of God. So let's read through Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71 together, and then we'll work our way through it. <clears throat> Luke 22, beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. 
Luke's account actually starts with the physical beatings. If you notice in Wayne's reading, Mark's account actually starts with the trial first, and then that leads to the beatings. Um, in Luke's account, he actually endures the beatings first, and then this kind of mock trial uh, takes place. And in reality, um, this was probably all going on simultaneously. Their mocking, their beating, and these things like that probably took place multiple times um, throughout the evening. Remember, this is Thursday evening, and it's going to be breaking way into Friday morning, which will play a significant role in why um, that's being recorded here. But Luke's account of physical beatings is fairly short. His emphasis is on the trial that comes next. But what we do read of his physical beatings is, is very important for us to understand. Verse 63, we see that there were men who were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him as they beat him. And so they're holding him in custody. They've surrounded him. This is the same word that's used to oftentimes to describe the crowd. When Jesus is doing miracles and he's walking from town to town and the crowd is crowding in around him, surrounding him, it's the same word that's being used here for holding. And so the idea is that um, he's being um, crowded around by hostile people. These are not people that just want to see what he's going to say or who he is. We have to understand that what we've seen through Luke is that they already have their minds made up of what it is that they want to do to him. They, this is just finally their opportunity. It's like Jesus said in verse 53, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. This is their time. This is their opportunity to treat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as they please. And they do so, they do so with such embarrassing hostility to mock and to beat someone that's um, completely surrounded by another, by, by a group of people held um, captive by them. And they're holding him, they're mocking him, they're ridiculing him, they're insulting him. Again, Wayne's reading of Mark this morning and Matthew's account too remind us that it is during this time they spit in his face. I've only seen that happen one time in real life where someone spit in somebody else's face, and it is disgusting. I mean, can you imagine the, um, how embarrassing it is. If someone, were to, if someone were to come up to you and spit in your face, what would be your knee-jerk response? Oh, man, it's going down. But Jesus, we see in prayer, and this is his meekness. When we talk about Jesus being meek, meekness is, is power under control. And this is one of the greatest displays of his meekness. He has already said earlier in Matthew's Gospel, if I wanted, in the garden, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels from my father and he would send them and they would rescue me and deliver me. The snap of my finger, I could be out of here. And get, but guess what he does? Guess what happens if he does that? We're all hopeless and lost. There's no salvation. There is no hope for redemption. We see his meekness, his power. You remember, Jesus is still 100% divine. He has the power to do anything and everything. He's proven that over and over again. And yet he controls the power that he has as he's being spit upon, as he's being mocked, insulted. The root word for mock is to dance around. Have you ever seen um, someone mock another person, scoff at them, ridicule them, insult them? 
the point the, the the point of doing so is to absolutely and thoroughly embarrass them in front of other people in front of other people and how do you like it when you're embarrassed when someone embarrasses you in front of someone else or a group of other people again what is your knee-jerk response and yet we see Jesus's complete and absolute meekness being able to hold together his power to endure such things striking him with fists slapping him but again this is what Jesus said what happened he told them back in Luke chapter 18 verse 32 that this is what was coming to him for he would be delivered over to the Gentiles and he would be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon and this is the hour when that takes place and that happens being surrounded by a group of men being mocked being spit upon being struck with fists being slapped enduring what it is that the father has for him so that we might be saved they say in verse 64 they also blindfolded him and kept asking him prophesy who is it that struck you what I find incredible about this is as I read this it's it's not as if blindfolding Jesus actually keeps him unaware of what it is that is happening I mean he's he's from our perspective we see how ridiculous this is because he's God of course he knows who's striking him of course he knew that I mean he he created all of these men that are in this group come about by his creation by his speaking by his forming when Psalm 139 says that we have been knit together in our mother's womb that was the same for all of these men and guess who did the knitting Jesus God part of the triune Godhead was there when each and every one of these people were created knowing what it was that the purpose that they would serve in their lives and that they would be there of course he knows who struck him and yet he continues to endure the ridicule the embarrassment the mockery the shame all of this is what we deserve we deserve the the brutality of the beating the mockery the shame this all of this should be ours when we talk about <clears throat> when we talk about what it is that Christ is the punishment that he has borne on our behalf we're not just talking about the cross though that is a significant portion of it we're talking about these events as well he's bearing this for us when it when when he's when he is chastised for our sins the punishment is upon him when Isaiah 53 talks about these things he's talking about elements like this as well that we deserve these are things that should be poured out upon us and yet are poured out upon Christ and in verse 63 it says and was said with many other things against him blaspheming him now what's interesting is that obviously by scripture being divinely inspired and from Luke's perspective what they're doing is complete blasphemy how could mankind treat the second person of the triune God in such a debase and shameful way it is nothing short of blasphemy and you got to understand that blasphemy according to the Old Testament was punishable by death 
stoning and hanging on a tree. That was what you got if you blasphemy God. Blasphemy in the Old Testament is never used in a context of person to person. Blasphemy is only used in context of man to God. It is one of the things that is, you blasphemy against God according to the Old Testament Levitical law, and you're done, punishable by death. And from Luke's perspective, from God's perspective, he said with many other things, they are blaspheming him. What they are doing is punishable by death, the way that they are treating the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about what it is um, from God's perspective and the weight that that carries with it and what it is that they are doing. Guilty of blasphemy, God, of, of ridicule, refusing. Blasphemy is to speak abusively of, to refuse and to respect what is good. God being the ultimate good, the greatest good, refusing to respect God, refusing to worship God. All of these people, there should be a crowd of people around Jesus, no doubt, but they should all be down on their faces worshiping him, not beating him, not mocking him, not spitting upon him. That's what he's due. What they're doing is complete blasphemy, and it's punishable by death, deservingly so. And the Gospel of Luke, from God's perspective, makes that clear. Ironically, it's what they're guilty of, blasphemy, that sets up this next set of verses perfectly. Because it's Luke's accusation of their blasphemy that is proven beyond a doubt by who Jesus claims to be in this next portion. It's, it's, it's really clear that what they are doing is blasphemy by who he reveals himself to be as he has a conversation with uh, the high priest. They're doing these things Thursday night, and in verse 66 it says, When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, and they have a conversation with him. It breaks way to Friday morning. Um, it could still be, you know, very, very early Thursday night, Friday morning. But they're gathered together, and the elders gather him to their council. And this is the, the council that they gather Christ before is known as the Sanhedrin. This is the supreme Jewish, religious, political, legal council that exists. It's made up of like Pharisees and Sadducees. And these two parties religiously did not have a lot in common. But when it came to um, their common goals, they would come together and unite. And this is one of them as they come together as the, the council of the Sadducees. You have the high priest, who's the leader of the Sanhedrin, who's Caiaphas at this time. You have the temple guard, who is below him. You have the chief priests, which were probably just like retired previous high priests and other priests. And then you have the scribes, and then you have the other lay priests. But you got to understand that they're all, they're all in cahoots together. Imagine, imagine a body of government that has absolute supreme religious and political and legal control over your life. And that's what they were. And even in the time of Rome, Rome still allowed the Sanhedrin to exist, and their power was virtually, over Jews, was virtually unchecked. 
It was ultimate. It was authority. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted to do over Jewish life so long as it didn't disrupt anything that Rome was trying to do, which is where we see this ends up going. Their commitment to put Christ to death is a willingness to involve even their enemy in the state of Rome in that case, but we'll get to that next week. So they have this trial. They lead him away to their council, and they have this trial over him, and the trial together in itself is, is just all corrupt and illegal. Um, you got to understand that, that the high priest, he's the leader of the Sanhedrin, and the high priest is supposed to come into office by um, succession of lineage. It was hereditary from the line of Aaron going all the way back to the Old Testament. But when Herod the Great, who's the king when Jesus is born, comes into power, he does away with all of that, and he begins to handpick who the high priest is going to be. And, of course, he does that because he wants to pick a man who's going to be in his pocket and benefit him and do what he wants as a way to exercise complete control over Jewish life. Religious, political, and legal control is, in the right, is sitting at the right hand of, of the king, um, Herod. And so they have this, this trial that they're putting together, and it's altogether corrupt and illegal. It's pretty much just a formality that they're going through. They already know what it is that they want to do, what they plan to do. It's already been spoken of through the Gospel of Luke that they've tried to put him to death several times. They would, they, they would have if they could have, but they couldn't have because it was not the appointed time. We always keep in mind the sovereignty of God. When, when not only we read about things like this, but we consider things in our own lives as well. They come about at their appointed time, governed by the sovereignty of God, ordained by him. And because of that, the believer is able to rest in what it is that comes into our life. That's what it is that Christ is able to rest in. He knows that this is the power ordained for darkness, for them to do as they please. And that includes part of this mock trial where nothing that is happening is actually supposed to um, happen in, in the legal sense in which they would normally move forward with a trial. We read again, Wayne read for us this morning, Matthew and Mark, their version of it um, remind us that there were false testimonies that were raised specifically, people appointed to tell lies of this, he said he was gonna do this, he said he was gonna do this. The thing is, is that none of their stories corroborated, but yet they still went forward with what it is that they wanted. Um, trials were legally had to take place in the daytime, and this takes place early morning or at night. And it certainly wasn't, they weren't supposed to take place within the house of the, the house of the high priest, which is where this is taking place as well. But one of the more interesting things I found was that they never had these trials on Fridays because cases of capital punishment could take several days. And they never wanted these cases to overflow into the Sabbath on Saturday. They never took capital punishment cases on Friday. And guess where, what day of the week it is when this is happening? It's a Friday. There's this entire, there's a sense of being rushed through this process of what it is that Christ is going through. And it's for the purpose of them just seeking to accomplish what it is that they want to do and carry out against the Lord. And we've seen that throughout the gospel and how they're desiring to put him to death. And this mock trial is just another way to do it. 
The point being is that they are corrupt. They value wealth and power over doing what is right, which is odd considering who they are because they are the, they are the priests. They are the ones who are supposed to instruct the people into doing what is right in the eyes of God, and they're the ones who are doing the exact opposite. And so we see that what is unjust is coming upon the just. And we even see that at times in our own lives and the lives of other people. Sometimes God allows what is unjust to come upon the just. From our vantage point, we see what it is that Christ is enduring. We know why he's doing it. We rejoice in it. We worship in it because if he is successful in his mission, we find salvation and redemption. We find forgiveness of sin. We find pardon. I mean, that we, we get together on Sundays to worship corporately. We find other opportunities to gather together to worship him corporately because we know what's taking place. This is one of those areas where we're okay with the, um, the unjust coming upon the just because we greatly benefit from it. And again, again, it reminds us that all of this is within the hands of the Lord. And it, and it causes us to think more broadly and biblically about these things as well. It's not just that it was, you know, Christ ordained for this moment. It's that everybody who was in place that played their part was ordained for this moment. I mean, you think about Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. People's hearts and people's lives are, in, are like streams of water in the hand of God. And he turns them wherever he wills in order to accomplish what it is that he sovereignly desires. This is how the scriptures can say that he's working all things together with the purpose and counsel of his will. It's not that God is just, God is not responding to things as they happen. God is orchestrating everything and it's all leading towards his divinely appointed end, which we know ultimately to be in the return of Christ and our being gathered together with him. That's the great hope of the believer. Is that, and then that makes God completely trustworthy. Come what may, we can always trust in him because he's the one that's in control. And that's a great benefit and help for us as believers as we endure hardship. But it's always been a bedrock source of hope and help for the church throughout the ages. As they were able to trust in God, knowing that he is the one that is ordaining what comes to pass. And so we're able to endure hardship well and to suffer well as we trust in the one who is incapable of doing wrong. He always does what is right. And he begins this conversation with the high priest, and they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. And they're asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? You know, they have in their mind that this person is going to come. This individual, the Christ, the Messiah, is going to come. And he's going to be completely human in their, in Judaism, the Messiah, the Christ. He's a human figure, but he's endowed with divine wisdom and power. But his role is largely, we've talked about this a lot, his, his role is largely militant and political. 
their idea of the Christ and the Messiah is that he's going to come into Israel and he's going to vanquish all of Israel's enemies, primarily Rome. And so their question is, are you this man? Are you this one that has divine power and divine wisdom who has come to deliver us, to crush Rome, to crush all of our enemies, to establish us, to take us back to the height of, of where we were politically under David and Solomon? Are you the one? Are you that one to come? And his response is, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. A Christ's response is consistent with proverbial wisdom. Again, consider Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. They're not there to learn. They're not there to truly ascertain whether or not he, who he is to what he has to say. They're simply looking for a confession by then which they can condemn him. What, what's interesting is that is Jesus's response because they've already proven themselves unworthy to listen. I mean, this was a theme back in Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, he's teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, and they ask him by what authority he's doing these things. And so he asks them a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? And they gather together and they're like, we can't say it from heaven because if it was and we denied John's baptism, then, then we're in trouble. But we can't say it's from man because everybody thinks John was a prophet. So they come up with this brilliant idea. Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll come together and we'll say, we don't know. So they come together, we, they say, we don't know. And Jesus answers them and tells, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Later on in Luke chapter 20, verse 26, they ask him a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And again, he comes up with a response that stumps them. And in verse 26, it says, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And then again, it happens later on in verse 40, when the Sadducees ask him about the resurrection, his response stumps them. And it says in Luke chapter 20, verse 40, they no longer dared ask him any questions. He's proven himself to be able to respond to them, to stump them, and their response is never to take his answer as what it's supposed to be taken as, his divine wisdom. But instead, they're committed to their own, their own ways, their own living, their own lies. And so they refuse to see and practice the truth. And so Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And so he remains silent, silent to them to a degree, in a way, in the presence of foolish people. But his response, what he does respond with, is interesting. And he says in verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He really, his answer, his, their question to him is, are you the Christ? His answer supersedes what their question is, as he identifies himself as the son of man. See, you have to understand that like in the Old Testament, one of the themes in the Old Testament that comes very clear is that God has a people for himself and his desire is to dwell with them and for them to worship him. And one of the ways that he would govern his people 
is through the kings that he provided the nation of Israel. And as the king went, so went the kingdom. If the king was righteous, then the, then the, the kingdom was prosperous. If the king was wicked, then they suffered for it. And eventually they get to a place where there are no good kings. If you read through the Old Testament, and after the nation of Israel splits into Israel and Judah, do you know how many good kings are recorded for the, the northern tribes of Israel? Zero. Not one righteous king is recorded in the book of the Bible for the nation of Israel. You know how many are recorded for the nation of Judah? Two. Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are the only two that are recorded as being righteous in God's eyes. This is a nation that you, you think back as to what it is that God had done for them, delivering them out of slavery in Egypt, right? Coming to them, instructing them on the tabernacle, manna, um, quail in the desert, right? I mean, bringing them into the promised land. I just got done reading through Joshua and, and, and how the Lord goes before them and he fights their battles and he drives the people out and he gives them the land, houses that it did, they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant, all of these things. It was like already, it was like a turnkey nation and God moves them in there. But because of their wickedness and their idolatry, they fall into worshiping false gods to such a grave degree that God ultimately leads them into exile. You can no longer be in this land. I am sending you out. And it's during this time of exile that um, this idea of the Messiah begins to take on a different shape through the prophecy of primarily Daniel and Ezekiel when this son of man is going to come. But he's not like what they were expecting before because Daniel describes him in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, as being divine and human. They're still waiting for this king, but he takes on a new nature. He's not just a king, an anointed king, priest that comes in and rescues them, but he's divine and he's human as well. And this idea is in the thought of Jews at the time. Not everybody held that belief, but that was certainly an element of who the Messiah might be. So when Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man, he, his claim is, I am not just the Christ. I am the Son of Man. I am the divine human priest king that has come. And if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 7, and you know he talks about that his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, a dominion that can never be um, taken away. It will never go away. It will, it will exist for all of eternity. That's who his claim is to be. His, his response of being the Son of Man supersedes, I am not just the Christ. I am the Son of Man. I am divine. I am human. I am the King. I am the priest. And you will see me seated at the right hand of the authority of God, which then prompts the priest's next question. So they all said, are you the son of God then? See, to sit at the right hand of God was to assume the, the, the position of power and authority of God himself. And Jesus says that that's where he's going to be. So their question is, are you the son of God? They don't understand. They don't mean son of God like we would say, you know, son of Dan or son of Craig or son of Derek, like someone's offspring. What they're meaning is, are you his representation? Are you his likeness to such a close degree that you are saying you are him? I mean, this is what happens. This is the problem that Jesus runs into in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. 
In fact, they say, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33. They understand very clearly that he makes himself God. His claim is to be God, and so their question to him is, are you God? We started with, are you the Christ? Then you wouldn't answer. Then you claim to be the son of man, this divine priest king. Are you, but then you said you're going to be at his right hand and authority. So are you God himself? That's what they want to know. Are you claiming to be God? And Jesus' response is, you say that I am. And they take this as an affirmation of his claim. It's you. You've said that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We'd heard, we've heard from ourselves, from our own lips, and this is enough to assign him to death. Claiming to be God in the flesh. The thing is, is that this is the way that Luke opened his, his book. Jesus' birth was foretold to Mary. An angel came in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is what was his, his identity, part of his identity from the very beginning, was that God was going to come in the flesh. I mean, this is what is so astounding at the beginning of John's gospel when he says in John chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory is that of the son from the father full of grace and truth divinity clothed in flesh I mean what a what a remarkable thing what an astounding thing no one ever would have dreamed that God himself would put on flesh and come and dwell among us. And because that's what Christ claimed to be, they said, essentially, you cannot be him because you are not doing anything that we thought that you were going to do and you are not what we want you to be. And this is one of mankind's fundamental problems. We will not allow God to be God. We want God to be who we want him to be. We will fashion him into our image and to make him be what we want him to be, to what suits us best and makes us happy, and makes us comfortable. But we have to remember that there is a fundamental difference between us and God. He is the creator and we are the creation. That's what makes Jesus Christ so incredible. It's the closest fusing between creator and creation that there can be yet still maintaining complete divine nature and Christ has, and yet full human nature as well. And this is what it took for mankind to have salvation. And that's why throughout the rest of the New Testament, the message that is preached over and over again, 
is the message of Jesus Christ, that their salvation found nobody in him, that he is God in the flesh, that he has come to rescue us, and that if you have faith in him and who he is and what he's done, then you might be saved. But if you reject him for his claim to be not just the Messiah, not just the Son of Man, but to be God himself, then you are indeed rejecting God. And to reject God is to assign yourself to complete separation from him in hell for all of eternity. And they can't see this. They're completely blind. And this is what the sinful nature does. Sinful nature has blinded mankind from seeing the glory of the Father revealed to us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're, we're all gathered here together this morning because our eyes have been opened to see, you know, majesty here is concealed from them. They don't see. I guarantee if they knew who he was and they saw who Christ was, they would not be treating him as they are. Our, we are here this morning because our eyes have been opened. The majesty has been revealed. It's no longer concealed from us. And having eyes of faith to see him, we worship. We respond with, with heartfelt gratitude, worship, love, and affection. I mean, when Scripture says that the call for the believer is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, I don't want to buck against that. I want to yield to that, and I want to say, yes, that's what I want to do. Teach me and show me, help me to do that, and to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to worship you and to give you the praise and the glory that's due to your name. That's why we gather together. That's why we sing. You know, we have people up here to help lead us in song because they have hearts to worship God and they want to help other people worship God by song. The reason I'm up here is because I want to worship God and I want to, I want to help you worship God through the preaching of the word. We take communion together as an act of worship to God corporately where we all come together and we're all saying there's one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all partaking of him together. We all look to him together as being the source of our hope and our salvation. We see because he's opened up our eyes. I read a passage like this and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, no, no. That's not the way this should be. And then, I, and then I hear the voice of God, not literally, of course, but I hear the voice of God say, yes, this is what must take place for you to be saved, to have redemption. And I'm humbled, and I'm undone by what it is that God would do to save a wretch like me. And that is one of the reasons why we partake of communion together. This is a reminder to me of my natural rebellion against him and his, his loving kindness towards me. 
this is a reminder of that I once regarded him like I should be, I could be in that crowd mocking, hitting, spitting upon him. And the only reason I'm not is because he's revealed his majesty to me. And now I, I want to live a life of worship to him in all that I do. Whether I'm here behind this pulpit or I'm out at home or wherever I am, and my prayer is that this, that would be the same for you as well. That you would be motivated to live a life of worship. Do you, are you, are you, would you live a life of worship at your job? At your home? When you're running errands? Do you live a life of worship because his majesty has been revealed to you? I hope so. That's the hope that we have when we come together and we take communion, which is what we'll do now. So this time is an opportunity for worship for those of us who know Christ. We do so with humility, but we do so with gratitude as well. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know him by faith. You've been saved by grace through faith alone. Then partake. But keep in mind, this is also a time of examination. And there are times in a believer's life where we are for our own spiritual good called to forego this time of communion when we examine ourselves and we find that we have been living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin. And this is the time to do that. This is the time of confession and to not partake of the elements. Part of the reason why we've decided as elders to keep the communion elements in the back is because it's a conscious effort to get up and walk back there and grab that juice and that cracker. Because you're saying, I know what I'm doing and I'm partaking of communion. I'm communing with God and my brothers and sisters in Christ together right now through this time of worship. And in that, it's also a time of assurance, examination, confession, but assurance as well. None of us live a perfect life. And I don't take communion because I've been perfect this week, but I take communion because I'm assured of the salvation that I have in Christ because he has opened my eyes to see his majesty and I've been saved by grace through faith. So the elements are on the table. I invite for you to grab them and return back to your seat. Partake of them in your own time after a time of prayer and then we will or just have a time of prayer. We'll partake of them together here shortly.